Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. My name is Ethan Knight. And we are back this week with number eight on the AFI Top 100 list of films, 1993's Schindler's List. Schindler's List. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. Have we, we, have we, we've had some Spielbergs before, yeah. E.T.? E.T., uh, Private Ryan. Yep. Uh, what else are we missing? That, that might it? be it. We've done some Spielbergs for the... Oh, oh, Indiana Jones. Isn't Indiana Jones one? Or did we do that for the other list? That was that was both, but that's Spielberg, right? Yeah, that's Spielberg. That's Spielberg. It's not like a Lucas thing? Uh, George Lucas was like a writer or a producer, but he didn't direct. Okay. Oh, and Jaws. Duh. Oh, I didn't. I actually did not recall that Spielberg did Jaws. Oh, yeah. Jaws is Spielberg. Well, we're here with him again. We are. We're back. And we're decidedly not here with each other. Not no. that we ever are, but we no. are in isolation. <laughs> if you're listening to this as it releases, this is some point in the COVID-19 pandemic, yeah. burgeoning pandemic. pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The... Uh, uh... Just just listen closely to make sure that we're not coughing. Right? <laughs> well, you're always sniffing, but I always cut That's those out true. so people don't actually know that. Fair. Although I'm now on a new allergy medicine, so my sniffing should be minimized. Well, that'll be nicer for me as the editor. But oh, so much less work. Hopefully everyone is doing well, safe at home. If you're working from home, if you're not, be careful. Social distancing. Right. Wash, wash your hands. hands. Alton Brown just put out a video about washing your hands. It's very informative. I recommend it. But all that to the side, if you listen to this after the release, this maybe was the beginning of the end, or maybe it was all right. a big dream nightmare that passed in the night and everything was fine. I guess I'll put it this way, because this is, at least for us in this moment, uh, maybe not for the listeners, right? This is really the first week of of people, of like a majority of people staying home. And, and really practicing social distancing. Things are being shut down. Uh, and of course, we started it with the uplifting, uh, carefree story. Uh, short, bright, funny. Schindler's List. Yeah. It's an oddly <laughs> fitting movie for these times. No, it really is. I mean, I, I it's kind of wild that, that we watched it at, the, at this exact moment because with this sort of political situation in the entire world, right, uh, on top of the fact that we that we have this sort of unprecedented global pandemic that, that you know, we, we haven't had to sort of face as as the as the entire world. Right. Uh, in, in this century, you know, we're starting off. The, I mean, the, the, so this is a weird film that like f- feels sort of ominous in a lot of ways or or at least sort of uh maybe not ominous but but feels it resonates with our current situation it truly does it, i mean i i think so because everyone knows nazis are a plague no true absolutely but we are <laughs> maybe far afield from what we should be doing here mm. so i think we should start our getting back on track with a plot synopsis all right 
Now, this is a three-hour movie, so it is a three-hour plot synopsis, or at least an adapted three-hour plot synopsis. Uh, Schindler's List is the story of Oscar Schindler, who is a wealthy German factory owner, or becomes a wealthy German factory owner, um, as well as the Jewish people he employs um, and attempts to save during World War II. Schindler bribes members of the Nazi party uh, into allowing him to acquire a factory uh, making cookware at, uh, in the middle of World War II. He employs, uh, and I'm going to say these names wrong, as I always do, um, Ijak Stern. Ijak Stern, is that how you say it, Matt? I would say Ichstak. Ichstak, Ichstak. Stern. We're going to call him Stern. Uh, ben Kingsley. Yes, Ben Kingsley. Uh, he's an important member of the Jewish community uh, with many black market connections. Um, Schindler employs Jewish people in his factory because the labor is cheaper, while Stern uses his position as an opportunity to help save people from being sent to concentration camps or, or killed. Uh, as the war progresses, um, Jewish people are moved from their homes into uh, a ghetto in, in Krakow, it's in Poland. Uh, meanwhile, um, SS Lieutenant, uh, here we go with the names, Eamon Goeth? I, I am tempted to say Eamon Gert, like, because it's Gert. almost Goethe, right? right. G-O-E-T-H minus the last E, so maybe just Eamon Gert. Gert, yeah. Uh, anyway, Gert arrives to lead the construction of the Plaslo, and again, maybe I'm butchering this, but the Plaslo con concentration camp. Uh, Gert empties the ghetto violently and moves the Jewish people to the camp. During this violent process, uh, many, many Jews are murdered. Schindler witnesses the violence from afar. He's obviously affected, probably horrified. Uh, he notices specifically a young girl in a red coat. Um, and when I say young, I mean young, young. And later he sees her again in a pile of corpses. Uh, Schindler maintains positive relations with Gert, uh, plying him with bribes and alcohol, and continues to be rather successful in terms of his business. Uh, Gert proves to be particularly brutal. He beats his servants. He shoots uh, Jewish prisoners indiscriminately. Um, Schindler uses his influence on Gert to convince him to make a subcant for his Jewish workers. Uh, as the war begins to go poorly for the Germans, prisoners begin to be transported to Auschwitz. Schindler cuts a deal with Gert to save his workers from Auschwitz and have them sent to Brinlitz instead. Uh, Gert agrees but insists on a massive bribe. Stern and Schindler create the titular Schindler's List, uh, a list of around 850 people who will go to Brinlitz instead of Auschwitz, thus saving them from almost certain death. Uh, at Brinlitz, Schindler enforces humane conditions. He bans indiscriminate killing of Jewish people, as well as banning Nazi officers from the factory floor itself. He also encourages his workers to, uh, to observe the Sabbath and generally treats them with care and compassion. Uh, when his train of women are accidentally directed to Auschwitz instead of Brinlitz, uh, Schindler bribes an official with a large number of diamonds in order to bring those women back to their families and friends in Brinlitz. Uh, further, Schindler makes sure that his factory actually does not contribute to the war effort. Its bullets, its shells uh, are duds. Um, Schindler's money, and he has a lot of it, 
uh, used to save Jewish prisoners and to buy up as much ammunition as possible uh, to prevent it from falling into Nazi armies' hands, uh, runs out just before the war ends. And when it does, he holds a meeting of workers and guards and announces that the prisoners are about to be freed, the Nazis should leave peacefully rather than killing all the Jews, and that he's going to flee to avoid being killed, hopefully to be picked up by the Americans. The Nazi guards, in fact, do leave peacefully. The Jewish workers forge a ring engraved with the phrase, whoever saves one life saves the world entire, and they give it to Schindler as well as a statement signed by each prisoner attesting to his help in saving Jewish lives. Schindler, as he's about to leave, breaks down, seeing how he could have done even more. He and his wife flee. The next day, the Jewish people are, quote-unquote, liberated by the Soviets. They've already been, you know, essentially liberated, but, but a Soviet officer shows up and liberates them. Uh, and they begin to walk to the nearest uh, town. Uh, the film ends by explaining that Schindler's marriage failed as well as his businesses. Gert was tried and executed for his war crimes, and Schindler was later honored, and I'm not, I'm not going to say this wrong again, but Yad Vashem, uh, for his help in saving Jewish lives during the war. Um, and at Schindler's real gravesite, uh, the actors and the surviving Jews uh, who worked for and with Schindler place stones on his grave. Uh, Liam Neeson, uh, who plays Schindler, uh, is the last person to visit, and he places roses uh, on the gravesite. And that's how the film ends. Yeah, so quite a long one. I think it's three hours ten without credits. Yep. It's with that epilogue scene, which is important. I don't yep. think people should consider skipping that. And you have, like you mentioned, Liam Neeson, who I guess I've just forgotten was a serious actor at one point. Yeah, he's he's definitely sort of shifted into roles that are not, they're not like this. <laughs> Qui-Gon Jen didn't really get him where he needed to go. No, I think it's a little different. Kind of like Alec Guinness when he was Obi-Wan Kenobi. That is kind of, that. You're, you've kind of got a point there. We also have, is it Ray Fiennes? I know it's spelled Ralph, but I always hear Ray Fiennes. Yeah. I or is that his it... brother? I don't know. But he's Voldemort. It's Voldemort. 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 Actually, a far more scary character, even than the Dark Lord himself. Mm hmm. As Eamon Gert. He's played a lot of villains, too. He was in uh, Red Dragon as well, and a couple other things. Right. And then Ben Kingsley. Sir. Is ben Kingsley. Stern. Sir Ben Kingsley. My apologies. Is Ishtak Stern. Also, another actor who's been in some strange films like Iron Man 2. I was going to bring up Iron Man. <laughs> was it Iron Man 2 or 3? No. It's oh, 3, Race oh, the Bad three. Guy. It's 3, you're right. It's Iron Man 3. Uh, and he's like a, a com. I mean, he, he again, like once he was in important films, and now he's in fucking Iron Man 3. The importance is that they're all fantastic in this. Yes. Oh, without a doubt. The performances are are breathtaking i think yeah it's surprising because ben kingsley and to a lesser extent ray fines don't really seem to have aged that much no although i don't know if he put on weight for the film but ray fines looks bad well yeah i think there's i think they're doing some movie magic to make him progressively look worse and worse he's definitely doing a lot of back arching to stick out his stomach yeah he's definitely <laughs> trying to shove his gut out there to be yeah. more of a corpulent terrible officer and then liam neeson looks 
way too young in this film. Uh, yes, and also physically massive. They've they must have done some movie magic because the real Schindler, I guess, was a very very large man, mm-hmm. uh, and there are shots where it looks like there's maybe some forced perspective, and they've put him next to a pretty short character. You know what I mean? They make him look they make him look fi- very physically imposing. Yeah, I don't think I had consciously noted that, but now that you mention it, I can easily see that that is true. So I, I wanted to, I really don't know how to, to tackle a, a breakdown of this film before our question, other than just to sort of orbit around some of the more powerful scenes, get a pivot in there somewhere, and just talk about the progression as is, I think. Sure. So maybe we should start with my pivot because it actually occurs very early in the film. Yeah, I'm interested to see where you've chosen. Yeah, this isn't what I would say is a typical pivotal scene. It's not the scene doesn't pivot or I guess the film doesn't pivot on it, but it shows us something. I think it's really important. So the scene I've chosen is where his erstwhile wife returns and catches him, you know, having an affair, which she seems to be pretty cool with besides like I'm not condoning it and I will leave again. But is like ultimately i don't know it was such a weird relationship that was shown there but this is them at dinner and she's asking him if all of this is a charade and he goes in to tell her how many employees he has and they're all working for one with one purpose to make money for him mm-hmm. and this ends with this long speech about how he was missing something in his previous businesses and also it looks like his future businesses and there's just one thing you just can't create and the wife says luck and he says no war yeah yeah. Let's go ahead and listen to it, and I'll tell you why I've chosen it after the fact. Okay. Take a guess how many people are on my payroll. Oscar. My father, at the height of his success, had 50. I've got 350. 350 workers on the factory floor with one purpose. To make pots and pans? To make money. For me. ask about me back home everybody all the time Hmm. I won't soon forget the name Schindler here I can tell you that Oscar Schindler I'll say everybody remembers him he did something extraordinary did something no one else did. He came here with nothing, a suitcase, and built a bankrupt company into a major manufacturer, and left with a steamer trunk, two steamer trunks full of money. All the riches of the world Comforting to see that nothing's changed. You're wrong, Emily. There's no way I could have known this before, but there was always something missing. In every business I tried, I can see now it wasn't me that failed. Something was missing. Even if I'd known what it was, there's nothing I could have done about it because you can't create this thing. And it makes all the difference in the world between success and failure. Luck. 
So the reason I've chosen this scene is that, and it's here in my notes, like, oh, right. At some point, we're going to be in this guy's corner. Mm -hmm. But he seems so monstrous in this, right? There are two paired scenes earlier in which you see him getting all glitzed up for the nightclub while, you know, the the Jewish people are being processed. Mm -hmm. And then again, you see him moving into this opulent house that the Jewish people were just evicted from and are moving into the ghetto. It's really poignant that like they're, they're fleeing basically uh, and and packing up only what they can take. uh, And he's, he's consuming. He just walks in and consumes that space. Yeah. And so both of those precede the nightclub scene with the wife where he talks about really the value of war for him in business mm-hmm. but it's that's like you know 45 minutes in the film that's at, at this point where we are still seeing a villain in schindler member of the mm-hmm. nazi party who is a war profiteer mm-hmm. and and he's he's willing to not only is he sort of the, this war profiteer, he he's he's a cunning businessman right like he's using stern uh as as a way to to manipulate the black market he doesn't the, the laws don't apply to him right he mm-hmm. he's willing to work in the black market he's willing to ex to exploit people he's willing to bribe people because he wants to make money right but then compare this to that i think is the climax scene where schindler is about to run away right and they present him with the ring and he breaks down because he's questioning why did i keep this car I could have saved 10 more people. Ten Why did I keep this Nazi pen? That could have been two people, maybe one. Maybe Eamon would have given me just another person, another life. And it just really drives home how changed he has been mm-hmm. by this. And that he really does regret all that he's done. And I think you can see that in the fact that he's given away all of his money to save these people. All of it. Because I mean, they're all of ill-gotten it. gains. Yeah, he, he doesn't live a good life by all accounts after this, but... He's recognized as a righteous person right. in Israel, right? Plants right. the tree. And so there's some recognition there to know that it was worth it. And there's that scene where Stern, Ben Kingsley's character, finishes the list and holds it up and says, this list is an absolute good. Mm. And it's just such a powerful mm. idea that even someone who seems so unrepentant and devoted to making money to selfishness actually turns a corner and says, there's something more important than that. And at the expense of what I thought my dreams, my aims, my goals were, mm-hmm. you know, I'm actually going to do some good in the world. Yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised that you didn't choose the scene where he does see the girl in the red coat. Right. Well, I mean, what can you do with that? It's visual, right? It's, visual. it's, it's it is utterly visual. visual because the film is almost entirely in black and white, except for the very first scene. And then the epilogue. And then of course the, the girl in the red, red coat, coat is the yeah. only thing in color throughout the majority of the film but it's silent right there's very little right it's just it's just a sound yeah but that is like the moment of the film certainly yeah and and, and that's the moment where he begins and, and and it's not even his full he has not it's not a, a, a sort of full transformation right that's the moment where he begins to see that things aren't right and it and it only gains momentum from there right because we don't see schindler and maybe this is why he's a, comp- a compelling character is that we don't see him uh, do it do a snap 
transformation. It's it is gradual, and we and we get to this is a three hour movie, right? So we get to see him be not a great guy for a long time, and then we get to question his his choices even after that scene, right? There there is a, I think there's a very palpable question. Uh, right under the surface, which is to say, is he doing this? Is he still doing this for money, or is he is he actually turning a corner? And I think that by the time we get to the car scene, right, like we've talked about, he he has taken a, a, a major turn. He's become a different person, right? Yeah, there's there's no question at that point. Yeah, and it, and it's even sort of represented through his uh, attempts to make his marriage work, right? Like even that. Uh, you know, he, he, he's sort of fully transformed, uh, by this. Yeah. Just to kind of close the loop on this point in that pivotal scene, which we just listened to, you also hear him talk about, you know, this perspective, third person, you know, there goes Oscar Schindler. He really did something in this world. Right. right? And then it's, it's almost an irony to what actually happens at the end of the film. He is recognized for having done something, but for completely different reasons and far more legitimate ones Right by the end of the film. Yeah, I think that scene very perfectly sets up, right, the 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 conclusion, right, which is to say, you're right, he does. He is he is remembered and he thinks he'll be remembered for for his capitalistic gains right and mm-hmm. and it's not that at all it's it's utterly the opposite right because he he, do, he is this capitalist right it's all about the cash the money the the success i mean he talks about having the however many trunks of cash right uh and we see him with those trunks of cash but when he has them when he does finally have them he uses them to to save lives to buy people's lives uh, so that they don't go to to the to the ovens, you know. Yeah, and I think that's made even more poignant when you see the full statistic at the end of the film during the epilogue, where it's something like less than what is it, forty thousand? No, I think it was less than four thousand. Okay, I actually had an extra zero. Less than four thousand Jews are alive today in Poland. And something like the descendants of the Schindler Jews, as they're called, was like 11,000. Yeah. So he, there are more descendants of the people he saved. And I guess including some of those people, although by now they're probably dead. Um, but there are more descendants of those people than there were Jews alive in, in Poland, which is just utterly wild. And I mean, I think this film does in many ways ask what, what the question of legacy is is right it brings up that theme of legacy and his legacy is is married to the legacy of these people right to to their ancestors right or descendants that is i'm sorry descendants um and and that he facilitates that he's able to to help that right uh which is really heavy i mean that's that's a lot of fucking people you know? Yeah, and and I think that statistic is what turned me around um, from feeling a certain way about the film. And to say more about that, I think you. I was thinking because you know I've been to the National Holocaust Museum in yeah. D.C. and I've done a lot of reading of um, Holocaust survivor narratives for trauma studies. You know what I'm doing my dissertation in right. is you know a very similar field. So I've just seen like horrible brutality and just absolute destruction of a people yeah and you think oh well 1100 that's great but 
that's not so many, right? You feel like Oscar Schindler in that moment with the car right. and, and the, the pin. But until you see that statistically and you say, wow, there's, there's a huge impact yes. that one doesn't consider. And certainly he would not have considered maybe not even in his lifetime. He died in what? 74. Yeah. Something like that. 74, 75, something like that. And, and I think that what this film does a really, really fantastic job of is showing both that like, this number that we might think of as kind of insignificant is actually really significant. And part of that is because this film shows us that even one life has, has value beyond what's, what's calculable, right? Like, yeah. Beyond the statistic that it is. Yeah. Like the, you know, and, and this becomes a, again, this becomes a question of the movie. Like, and I think they, they say it outright, how much is a life worth to you? Right. Uh, and the question gets sort of bounced back to Schindler himself. The, the, I think it's it's Gert that says, you know, no, how much is it worth to you? And he spends all his money. He spends everything he has, right? Uh, and that's not enough. It's never enough, right? Which is to say that, that lives are worth, uh, they're, they're, they're invaluable, right? We can't necessarily put value on them. Because when it's your life, it, it, it means everything. Yeah, and that's a truism, I think, that is given an actual shape throughout this yes, film. Yes, yes. Which makes it better, of course, than the truism represents. But I would say that I'm largely uncomfortable giving a thesis for the film. Yeah. But if I had to give a thesis, I would say something along those lines, right? Is that it is that truism, but it's an embodied truism. Yeah. So it's one thing to say if the one thing entire another to actually see it i think yeah because and, and i think that it, it's 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 such a contrast right to see how little lives are valued individual lives are, i mean people we we really it is hard to watch there, there's a period in, near the middle of the film where where we're really where so many people are dying and for and for nothing for for where, where lives are valued so little right uh, compared to what what we see Schindler learning to do, right, which is to say that like the the lives have so much value, and he learns that lives have so much value, and it's contrasted by the the Nazi sort of disregard entirely for for life. I mean, at one point, I think Gert even says, you know, uh, you're not. She says to a Jewish character, right, you're you're not a person exactly in the strictest sense of the word. I think. Yes, in the strictest, yeah. And and I think that that is really impactful. And I mean, if we really think about the moment we're in right now, this this we're in a global pandemic, coronavirus, right? And there are people out there that are saying this is not uh, that that bad. It's not that important, and only a few people are going to die. I mean, that that is a devaluation of life that I think we're seeing right now. Just because you're you're someone who's at risk for you know dying from this coronavirus doesn't mean that your life has no value just because you're old or just because you're infirm in some way, your life still has value, especially when it's your life. Right. Uh, and not some sort of abstract idea of people out there. Um, and, and so this is, again, I mean, a really heavy film in general, but, a, but a really heavy film, I think right at, at this moment. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's a reminder. I want to echo that sentiment about the invaluability of life. And to also call out the people who say like, oh, it's such a minor thing. We're only going to lose X amount of people and not really sitting through and thinking like, 
those are people who have loved ones who have fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, right? It's a horrible thing to consider that as a acceptable loss. There is no such thing as acceptable loss in human life. And I do want to turn around a little bit to back to Eamon Gert, Ralph Fiennes' character in his apparent madness or psychopathy, but I don't think that's quite it because there's a couple things that stick out to where you probably couldn't label him just an actual psychopath. Yeah. Although a lot of his actions are right where there's an attempted escape and he goes out and shoots every other man killing yeah. 25 people in one yeah. go. Right. And they have that depicted it's hearsay that occurred, but we actually get to see it in scene. And then you have Oscar Schindler trying to convince him for mercy, right? Absolute powers to pardon. Right. And he tries that out and then ends up killing the the boy in the house and then later, when you're talking about how he's mentioning to Helena Hirsch that she's not a person in the strictest mm-hmm. sense of the word, he's considering raping her at that moment. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately lashes out at her and attacks her for trying to trick him into having sex with her, which, of course, she's silent the entire time. And he's having this internal monologue that he's vocalizing to her. It's, you know, at its craziest moment, it seems like. But yeah, he's such a... A, a complicated character in all all negative ways. He's yeah. monstrous, but the worst part is that he seems to be in full possession of his faculties throughout, and it's just an ordinary monster of Nazism. Yeah, it, it's it's the, I think it's really that scene where he does try out the idea. I mean, it's Schindler argues right that real power is the ability to spare life rather than to to take it away right that's showing the, the ultimate power uh the, the power to pardon and so we see him go sort of through the camp and and try that out and not kill people and and indiscriminately but but he ultimately decides against it which i think is is the true nail in the coffin for that character which shows that like you're right he's maybe not fully psychopathic or or whatever there he has the capacity for for uh mercy for for being a a normal person and he just doesn't like it he just it's just not it doesn't it doesn't fulfill his uh you know sort of his image yeah his image and it it doesn't give him the pleasure that he's looking for right because it's all about his uh, gert's pleasure right he he gets pleasure from picking off people from his balcony with a with a sniper rifle uh, he gets pleasure from, you know, beating these people to death. He gets pleasure from, you know, and so w- when a little bit of that pleasure is denied to him, he, he's like, forget it. I want the whole thing. I don't want to, I don't want a half measure. Uh, we, we see those weird moments of humanity from him that show him as, as not, not a monster that we can't understand or recognize, but but what is much worse, a monster that we do kind of understand is a person and is not that different from the rest of us. Right, and is not solitary either. That is right out there in droves. Yeah, and and the real the real I think the real uh, point to be made right is that the Nazis and and even Schindler at the very beginning right do not value. Uh, other people they don't see other people as as full humans and when you don't see somebody else as a full human when you when you only see yourself as as the real person right uh 
then it allows you to enact terrible cruelty, terrible cruelty. And that's frightening. That's really frightening to see in, in the real world, right? Monsters aren't blank-eyed, uh, you know, non-humans. They're, they walk among us. And, and that capacity is maybe within, maybe within many of us, right, for, for cruelty. And that's horrifying. It is, but I think it's now time to turn to our three questions. Yeah, I think you're right. Before we do that, however, let's talk about Anchor. Oh, let's please. So, first question. What do we owe to this film? Oh, wow. That, I mean, that, the, the, for those of our listeners who haven't actually sat and seen this film, I mean, there is a, there is a real weight to this. And I mean, a, a weight you can feel physically. So to think about what we actually owe to this film, at some level, we have to just talk about the fact that it, it gives weight to, the Holocaust. It gives reality to the Holocaust in a visual, uh, you know, oral medium, something you can see and and feel. Right. It's not just pages on a book. Uh, it's it's not just a story you hear. Right. I I think this film lays that out in a really brutal way that uh, that is that is that is almost impossible to ignore, and it does it as a mainstream film. Yeah, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that every Holocaust media in America post this film goes through this film. Mm-hmm. Just like how another Spielberg, Spielberg film, every World War II depiction after Saving Private Ryan goes through that film too, because these are large, sweeping, often universalizing statements about these events, which happen to be historically contemporaneous. But they have such a power because we are such a visual culture. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it's, it's not, not as if Americans were really in tune with what exactly went on in the Holocaust. Certainly right after the war, certainly during the war, there was some denial of it. And I think it, it's definitely taken us as a people a while to to grow into that idea mm-hmm. of the horror, right? Most people want to shut their eyes against it. Some people still do, as a matter yeah. of fact. Yeah. But I think a film like this really does a lot, culturally speaking, right? Academically, you have things like Eichmann in Jerusalem, to talk, like Hannah Arendt's book to talk mm-hmm. about Holocaust, or Primo Levi, or Italo Covino, or Ruth Kluger. Mm-hmm. A lot of their Holocaust narratives very, very important, very, very powerful. But most people aren't going to read those. And I think it really comes down to this film that becomes most people's touchstone for the Holocaust. Yeah, it's a Spielberg film, right? There is some there's there's value in a Spielberg film, right? Like everybody has seen most everybody in in America has seen a Spielberg film, right? Uh, And and the idea that Spielberg is not only such a prolific filmmaker, uh, but but a, a an enduring filmmaker, right? Like a Spielberg movie is almost guaranteed to to do well. Uh, so there's a brand recognition that comes with that, right? And there's a there's a sort of distribution network that comes with that. Uh, you know, this is a movie that you see that that gets that gets shown to high school students, that gets shown uh, to college students, that gets shown 
you know, at community events. I mean, this is this is it has a reach and it has an accessibility as a uh, as a Spielberg film that other films don't have that documentary films don't have, you know. Well, then with that in mind, we'll ask our second question. Does it hold up? I think the answer is absolutely yes. I think the this is a black and white film with just a little bit of color, as we've pointed out. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's the, the way black and white is used makes it feel uh, almost contemporaneous w- with the events that it's portraying. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it feels like something from the 40s or, or, or maybe just after, right? Um, and it feels timeless. It doesn't feel dated. It feels like it's it, it feels like you're watching a little piece of history. And I think that's purposeful. Yeah, and I think absolutely we've covered the virtues of black and white film at this point on this podcast ad infinitum. Yeah. Or ad nauseum at least. But I will say that I had seen this once before. I didn't actually answer ask this at the beginning, as I usually oh, yeah, do, but I saw this do, yeah. when I was 16 mm-hmm. with my girlfriend, now wife, and it was a very affecting thing, right? And I don't think the Holocaust ever been real for me until that. So in that way, I think that's my answer for the previous question comes from. But now, as I mentioned as well earlier in the episode, I've done a lot more study in trauma and also the Holocaust itself. And... If anything, I would say this movie is is too positive about the event. I think yeah. there is a chance that someone who hasn't done a lot of research in this watches this film and says, well, you know, things seem to be okay, right? We don't really see that much damage to the people that Schindler chooses to protect, right? Some right. get shipped off to Auschwitz and come back. Like all of them come back. Like think right. about how crazy that is. It's I mean, it's almost a sort of fantasy, and 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 this is also part of like the film's impact, right? Is that it is real. Like this mm-hmm. is not obviously it's it, this is a sort of fictionalized version of events, but but that's only in the sort of like very specific details. I mean, this this happened. And yeah, I think I think my point then is that. Though this happened, there are several, you know, countless opportunities or moments in which something far worse occurred. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is this is truly like the best case scenario for for uh, like Holocaust victims. I mean, and I mean, if this is the is the best it can get, then think about how much worse it can get. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I don't want this film to be monolithic for people. In their understanding of the Holocaust. Right. I understand why it has done great things, but also I want to temper that, I think, a little bit with the idea that, you know, people should be informed about the worst case scenarios as well, right? Go to a museum about this. Go see Memorial. Go think more deeply about this. Don't just let Schindler's List be your understanding of the Holocaust. Yeah, and I think the best scene that illustrates this this idea that we're talking about is the shower scene with the women in Auschwitz where mm-hmm. where it's this prolonged scene where these are and there's an establishing scene earlier where one of the women in the bunks uh before they go to Auschwitz talks about essentially describes what was happening in Auschwitz, you know, people being gassed in the in the showers. Uh, and all the women sort of brush it off as like, that's impossible. It, that can't be happening. And they all, you know, sort of logically, uh, 
refute it. Um, and then we see those same women realizing like this, this is it. This is the end. And it, it that, that is one of the hardest things to watch, I think in this film. And of course they, do, we don't see them die. They are lucky enough to get actually the, the, the water. Right. And the idea that, you know, that that could be something widespread. I mean, that is literally the wor- the, the the best case scenario in that situation. And it did not happen to very many people, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And so we, we it, like you said, it's, this was the exception, not the rule, right? It was much worse. And to further your point about that scene where they're in the bunks talking about the gassing and how they just can't make sense of it. Well, it's yeah. because it's nonsensical, right? It it's is. insanity. It is a calculated insanity of the Nazi party, the Nazi machine, and that shouldn't in itself make you think that it can't happen again, right? Because one of the things that we have been very clear about in Holocaust studies and in disciplines of trauma is that these are conditions of madness that are pervasive, right? If you want to think about the, the comparison to monsters earlier, that the monsters are among us, that we are the monsters potentially, that this could happen anytime, anywhere, just given a certain set of circumstances. Yes. So it's not as if this insanity is incommunicable or impossible today. It is just part of the way the, well, uh, confusion of human existence, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is something that we have to, I mean, this is, this is the never forget mentality, right? That we have to remember that this happened. And it didn't happen that long ago. It happened less than a hundred years ago. I'll, you know, and it can happen again. It can very easily happen again. And is in many ways, you know, it has happened at smaller scales again and again. Right. You can think about the Armenian genocide. It's just one example. Right. Something that has been almost forgotten entirely. Right. And I mean, I even when we think about our own about about the United States, I mean, it's been sort of lost in the uh insanity of the of the news cycle uh since then but you know six months ago we were talking about the the concentration camps basically at at the at the southern border right uh where children are in cages right i mean we did this in america with the uh during world war ii with the japanese internment camps those are concentration camps that happened here right and it can happen here and it is happening here like right now you know uh, maybe not at the same scale, um, but but it is happening, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And and we have to remember that. And and I think this film just does it does that work of of showing us that, like you you cannot forget this. We have to remember this. We cannot deny it. And this is like the happiest case scenario. Like this is the best outcome for for, for the people that went through this. And if this is the best outcome, I mean, just that it just, it's astounding. Then we will turn to our final question then, even though we are <laughs> on track for our longest episode ever. It's also right. one of the longest films we've seen, minus like Ben-Hur. Yes, that's true. So our final question is, do we care? I think the answer, without a doubt, is is absolutely. I mean, I, I and in fact, I think that it's easy to not care enough about this movie. Sure, which I think is consistent with what I was saying. In the doesn't hold up yeah, question. Absolutely. So I'm in full agreement with you. I do care about this as a person, care about it as a culture, as people, or as Americans. I think we should care about it. And I, I think we've enumerated to a great extent why that is the case. Yeah. Every every person 
should see this film. If you if you can, you should. And many of you are probably isolated at home, so this might be a great time to sit down with a long film. Yes, but I, but I would suggest this: if you're going to sit down during the the uh, social distancing coronavirus deal, sit down with this, and, and you've chosen to sit down with this film. Sit down with a little bit of uh, alcohol. You know, a, a couple of a couple of glasses of bourbon are, is going to make it easier to to take in. It's to be fair, you say that with everything. True, but this in particular, this is a film I had to get up. I had to. I mean, I can't imagine seeing this in the theater. I had to stop a few times and get up and walk around and just it. it, it when we see the uh, the scene of the uh, ghetto being moved, essentially liquidated, liquidated uh, that after that scene, I needed. I needed like a couple of minutes i needed to get up and walk around and 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 it's heavy it's it's heavy it's a heavy film but that is our time for this week so we will be recusing ourselves (laughs) we do have a film next week we'll have a bonus episode coming up and then after that we will be back on the afi top 100 number seven 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. Ooh, this is one uh, I've been looking forward to revisiting because I have never made it through the whole film before. Another long one, too. I think it's a long one. I know it's a long one. I have never seen it, however, so I'm looking forward to it. But until then, I've been Matt Uh And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Uh, and I'm not going to do a silly thing this week. I think this movie uh, asks us and reminds us that it's not fun. The world is bad sometimes. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.